Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plant. It's time to hemp present. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien, Vivian McPeak, will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to hemp present about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Present weekly radio show where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. Join me for a weekly reefer radio rebellion against prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers, and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest, celebrating its 25th year found at hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book, Protestable, a 20 year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing. Also found at hempfest.org. Transmitting from a fortified bunker under a ramshackle reefer radio warren at an undisclosed location deep within the rumbling bowels of underground Seattle, my goal is to spread the green flame of 420 truth in 30 minute increments. Marijuana and Hempy New Year to you. We made a lot of progress in 2016 and added a lot of states to the legalization list. As we enter 2017, we're hopeful that we can increase the peace by pushing for even more reforms to take place. From everyone here at Cannabis Radio, we wish you all a hempy holiday season and a great new year. Today's show features some best of nuggets, and we'll be back with more dispatches from the front lines of the struggle for cannabis equality on Cannabis Radio, your source for the force of freedom. Today's guest on Hemp Present is Amanda Ryman, manager of Marijuana Law and Policy for the Drug Policy Alliance, who will be joining me in about 120 seconds. The Drug Policy Alliance, or DPA, is a New York City-based nonprofit organization led by Executive Director Ethel Nadelman with the principal goal of ending the American war on drugs. The stated priorities of the organization are the decriminalization of responsible drug use, the promotion of harm reduction and treatment in response to drug misuse, and the facilitation of open dialogue about drugs between youth, parents, and educators. Their mission statement says that the Drug Policy Alliance envisions a just society in which the use and regulation of drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights, in which people are no longer punished for what they put into their own bodies, but only for crimes committed against others, and in which the fears, prejudices, and punitive prohibitions of today are no more. The Drug Policy Alliance believes that cannabis should be legal for medicinal purposes of severely ill individuals. They're working state by state to educate and inform governors and the people about their beliefs on medical marijuana. They present their success with the Compassionate Use Bill, which brought medical marijuana access to New Mexico in 2007. The DPA believes that the war on drugs in America has failed. They present the argument that the United States has spent billions of dollars on making the country drug-free, but many illicit drugs such as heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and many others are purer and more prevalent than ever before. And I believe most importantly, the DPA believes that harm reduction is the best solution to drug abuse and argues that it is not a source for the promotion of drug legalization 
rather a movement to reduce the harm of drug use and abuse in our society. Amanda Ryman is the manager of Marijuana Law and Policy at the Drug Policy Alliance, where she works to develop DPA's marijuana reform work as it relates to litigation, legislative and initiative drafting, campaign strategy, policy advocacy, media relations, fundraising, and public education. Ryman joined DPA in 2012 after working with the Berkeley Patients Group, and she served as the first chairwoman of the Medical Cannabis Commission for the city of Berkeley. She actually has a PhD, not necessarily in THC, and I could consume most of the time of this interview with her lengthy credentials and introduction. So let's just get to it. Welcome, Amanda, to Him Present on Cannabis Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You folks at DPA are like the genuine brainiac activists, which, you know, of course I call brainiactivists. Since you hang out in the upper echelons of the drug policy reform activist paradigm, from your perspective, how are things proceeding? How is the master drug legalization plan unfolding? It's going very well. We're seeing really good outcomes in states that have changed their marijuana laws that are moving away from prohibition and more into regulation. We, of course, are seeing wonderful results from states that are allowing cannabis for medicinal purposes. And we're also seeing a lot of movement just in the question of whether we should be arresting people for personal drug use. I think there was a time when a lot of the public felt that arresting somebody for their personal drug use was the right way to help them. But with looking at the number of people that are now incarcerated in the United States for drug use, I think that folks are starting to question whether this is the right way to go about it. So we're seeing movement, not just in the marijuana legalization realm, but really in the entire paradigm of what it means to use an illicit substance and what's the best outcome for those folks that are using illicit substances. So there's kind of a whole new worldview evolving on the entire concept of the adult's right to alter their mental perception, right? I think it's partially that, you know, I I feel that there's this perfect storm that's being created right now where you have the medical cannabis issue that's largely being pushed forward by parents who want access to it for their young children, which is, of course, extremely compelling. We have the over-incarceration that we've seen that has resulted in entire communities just being decimated by the criminal justice system. And then at the same time, we have the fact that now uh, white people are overdosing on opiates. And so we have all of these things happening at the same time that's calling into question how we've been addressing substance use in the past. So we kind of have these social justice opportunities opening up and simultaneously they're creating a whole new economic opportunities. Ethan Nadelman, the founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, you might know who he is, who is missed, he's missed here today, but only a little bit because you're here. He was recently quoted as saying, we're entering a new era of marijuana law reform in which the influence of funders and organizations driven primarily by concerns for civil rights and personal liberties and not by any financial interest in legalizing marijuana will be superseded by people and corporations driven largely by their pursuit of legal profits, which of course comes off in 2016 somewhat as an understatement. What do you think the biggest takeaways from this new landscape will be, both pro and con, in terms of an almost certain corporate industry, I don't know, takeover might not be the right word? Well, I understand what you're saying, and I think it's a really good question. I do feel that the cannabis industry has an opportunity to do a lot of really amazing things. One thing it's not going to do is take down capitalism. You know, capitalism has existed in this country for a very long time. It's going to continue to exist. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves as the activists and as the folks that want to see positive change come from this movement away from prohibition is how do we work within the framework of capitalism to try to create 
take cannabis as this philanthropic commerce, as something that we know is generating a lot of revenue, but put in the hands of the right people could do a lot of good for communities rather than just making the rich people richer. And I think we're in a situation now where the individuals that have the opportunity to raise the capital, because they're the ones that have the experience in this industry, are also the folks that happen to give a shit about poor people who don't have enough and who are being targeted by the criminal justice system. And that's something we haven't really seen before. So we have this opportunity where we do are going to see corporate interests come in. That's inevitable. But we also have this cadre of activists who are the first ones that are getting the licenses that are opening the marijuana businesses. So if we institutionalize this kind of giving, this kind of philanthropy, this kind of awareness of the social justice issues that this industry was built on, I feel that we do have an opportunity to infuse this notion of philanthropy before it becomes just another corporate industry. And the fear, of course, uh, from some quarters is that the shoe leather community-based activists, entrepreneurs will, from their own business acumen and sweat equity, uh, just cobble an industry from the ground up only to have it kind of devoured by corporate moneyed interests seeking to consolidate power and control and wealth, which is, of course, traditionally happened when you have a new emerging market like this. But this might be a little different because it just seems like this is a completely new paradigm. You know, when's the last time you had something that was just completely underground, black market, totally illicit with a gigantic global culture just kind of overnight start becoming accepted. Do you see, is there a parallel other than alcohol prohibition that you see? Well, it's difficult because with alcohol prohibition, you know, you had an alcohol industry and prohibition was fairly short in the grand scheme of things. So when people came out of, when they came out of prohibition, which was of course largely driven by the Great Depression and the need for this economic robustness to come back, we didn't necessarily, it wasn't like there had been decades and decades and decades of illicit alcohol consumption. It's not as if it was being used medicinally in a way that was saving lives where people weren't have, get, being able to have access to it for life-saving reasons. So I do think this is a completely different situation. And I think it's a situation we have never seen before. And even if we look at the last big new industry, which would be tech, the tech industry was not created for the purposes of equality, you know, for the purposes of rep- repairing damage that's been done by the war on drugs. And here we do have that opportunity. The key, as you mentioned, is to infuse it and institutionalize it before the corporate interests come in and try to take it over. And so, you know, the craft beer industry, the craft wine industry, with the internet, we're seeing so many opportunities for people to make their own products and sell them regardless of their ties to corporate interests through websites like Etsy. So I think that we can apply some of these kind of worker-owned entrepreneur opportunities that have come out of industries like tech and infuse them into the cannabis industry, not just from the people that are building the industry, but the localities that are regulating it. Amanda, the Salisbury, England-based company GW Pharmaceuticals announced recently that its cannabis-derived drug Epidiolex had successfully reduced seizures in children with a rare form of epilepsy. It's been reported recently as well that while the Justice Department and the Department of Health and Human Services spent much time and resources preventing American companies from developing cannabis medicine, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been assisting GW Pharma in shoring up the intellectual property rights to a broad swath of cannabis-derived medicines and techniques. Yet it's not an American company. Do you know anything about this, anything about what's going on with that? 
Well, I mean, I, I read a little bit about it this morning. I, it's just kind of coming on my radar. I mean, to be honest, I, there's been kind of these conspiracy theories for a long time about the United States and their, you know, plans for cannabis medicines and how are they going to corner the market and all of these kinds of things. And so I'm not surprised, right? You know, GW Pharmaceuticals was the first to really take the whole plant and develop it into an extract that could be tested in a randomized clinical trial. And that's really the key. So, you know, when you're looking at how do you take a plant and develop it into an FDA-approved medication, I mean, we have the FDA here, right? So we have these specific rules about what has to happen before a drug can be brought to market. Unfortunately, the requirements of the FDA are such that the cannabis plant in its raw form would never be able to fulfill the requirements that the FDA has for something to be a regulated medicine in the United States. The standardization that has to come with that, that just isn't available in the raw plant. And unfortunately, we don't have much of an affinity for raw plant medicine in the United States. So we don't have a separate agency that looks at the standardization and applicability of raw plants for medicines, right? Everything has to be boiled down to a pill or a liquid or, you know, some other form where they can administer it, where they know they're getting the same dose every single time, no matter what. So GW Pharmaceuticals is really the first to do that with the cannabis plant. And even though it's made by some companies right here in the United States and right here in the Bay Area, exactly, it's still not available for use in the United States because it hasn't gone through this very specific FDA channel. And it is just actually starting to do that with a Pidiolex at UCSF and at Columbia University, I believe. You're so smart. I'm going to try to, to squeeze in another question Okay, <laughs> because I... I rarely get the opportunity to talk to you. A few years ago, the International Narcotics Control Board, the global body in charge of overseeing drug treaties, issued a warning about the unprecedented surge in medically approved marijuana use, warning the U.S. government to crack down on medical marijuana laws. These treaties that they're referring to are binding at the highest level of law in every country, but how much of an obstacle to legalization really are these U.N. and these trade treaties? Well, at the state level, so states can legalize cannabis and change their cannabis laws without violating the international treaties. The international treaties are really about federal changes to cannabis law outside of the use for medicine or research. So we look at countries like Israel and Canada that already have federal medical marijuana programs. They're allowed to have those because the treaty says you can have them as long as what you're doing is for medical or research purposes. The first country to break with that treaty was Uruguay, when in 2012, they became the first country to legalize adult-use cannabis as an entire country. And they did get threats from the UN when they did that, but they basically were like, well, screw you, we're Uruguay, like we're this teeny little country, we're going to do what we want, like we're totally in significant to you. But if you saw a country like Mexico trying to legalize adult use cannabis or the United States trying to legalize adult use cannabis, then the UN and the treaties would definitely kick in. So what we're seeing in April is the UNGAS meeting in New York, which is the UN General Assembly special sessions. And they're going to be discussing the treaties for the first time in decades. So we're already seeing organizations like the World Health Organization, the Open Society Foundations, and other that just kind of keep their finger on the pulse of how drug prohibition is impacting peoples globally are going to be there to weigh in. And I think what the best outcome, I mean, the best outcome from that would be that the treaty just went away, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think the best outcome we can hope for is that they take cannabis out of the list of drugs 
that you cannot change the laws about in your country. If we just took cannabis out, what that would do is it would free up all these Latin American countries that are being hit so hard with violence related to drug cartels, they would be able to legalize cannabis. And that would be a huge step in the right direction to really starting to undo the paradigm of prohibition being our best bet when it comes to drug control. Amanda Ryman, manager of Marijuana Law and Policy for the Drug Policy Alliance. How can people find out more about the DPA and your great work? We'd love for you to visit our website. It's www.drugpolicy.org. Thank you so much for being on the show. Please give a good scratch to Tallulah Bankhead for me. Will do. Always great talking to you. You know, Thanks for all you guys' amazing, groundbreaking work. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you all at HempFest. It was my pleasure, and I would love to come. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause because there's flaws and laws. Come right back. We're just getting started. Time to roll out for the people that let us hemp present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the Seed to Sale Show, January 31st and February 1st at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. Register now at www.seedtosaleshow.com or 888-409-4418. The NCIA See the Sale Show, the largest cannabis business event to be held in Denver, will host over 2,000 cannabis professionals and focus on innovations and technology in cultivation, infused products and extraction, and sales strategies. The show will recognize the best in the industry with the Cannovation and Canatech Awards. Register before January 6th for $100 savings at seedtosaleshow.com. Use the code RADIO15 for an additional 15% off. Plan your experience now for the NCIA Seed to Sale Show, January 31st and February 1st. Seedtosaleshow.com or 888-409-4418. Do you want to get in on the booming cannabis industry? With new Frontier Data, we give industry insiders the power of big data analytics to help navigate this rapidly growing and changing landscape. New Frontier's tools help you make critical decisions based on the facts. Our industry analyst reports reveal the best opportunities. Our custom research engagements deliver answers to the most difficult questions. And our cutting-edge big data platform, Equio, puts real-time information and answers you need right at your fingertips. Go to www.equio.io and sign up for your free membership today. That's eqio.io to sign up now. The power of real-time big data is now in your hands. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. Mindful of sustainable practices and limiting their environmental footprint, Sansal hemp is always grown outdoors, as nature intended. By starting with uniform genetic profiles, Sansal ensures the plant will maintain its optimal performance and yield consistently throughout its life cycle. It is through innovative processes that Sansal is able to achieve pure whole hemp extracts and meet industry requirements and the level of quality desired by many of their customers. Healthy plants... Healthy people. SansalCBD.com. Improve your lifestyle naturally. 
Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. Bought a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow. The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the board, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put different celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chich and Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him, think that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Legal to listen to all over the world. We're just not sure about France. Cannabisradio.com We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Paul Stanford's been active to end marijuana and hemp prohibition since he was instrumental in getting the Oregon Marijuana Initiative on the ballot in 1984. He is the host and producer of the TV show Cannabis Common Sense, and he produces the yearly Hemp Stock Festival in Portland, Oregon. Stanford is the founder of the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, THCF, whose medical marijuana gardens have won many awards. Welcome, Paul, to Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. Thank you. It's, it's an honor. I appreciate it, Viv. You've been working to get cannabis hemp legal for a long time. Paul, how do you feel about the progress we've made so far, and what do you think is going to happen next? Oh, I think it's great. You know, we've finally seen some movement. You know, I remember when marijuana was being decriminalized in the 70s, and we thought that legalization was just around the corner back then you know, in the late 70s, but taking a lot longer, you know, there's the reactionary pullback from the Reagan administration, and they're just saying no business, and they, they put George Bush in as their first drug czar. He came here to oppose our marijuana initiative back in the 80s, but I think it's great that we're finally starting to see some breakthrough and some acceptance, and I can drive down the road and see, you know, marijuana stores here in Oregon and Washington and Colorado, too. So that's a big change. However, there's a lot of places in this country where people are still going to jail. There are a lot of prisoners in jail, families being destroyed. We need more legalization efforts. We need to change the laws that got us over the finish line in terms of you know, legalizing marijuana in Oregon and Washington and Colorado, too. We need to make those laws better. Just today... The Oregon Senate passed a bill to change the medical program and the recreational program. Our legislature has made it a little bit better, I believe. And so in terms of the future, we need to keep making those changes so that people can realize that, you know, marijuana is not like alcohol. It doesn't deserve to have the same restrictions as alcohol does. People don't die from marijuana overdoses the way people die from alcohol overdoses. People are going blind from homegrown marijuana the way they were going blind from homemade gin back during alcohol prohibition. So it's a different animal, and we need to treat it as such. In fact, not only a lot, lot safer, but in many ways it's very good for you. So, you know, it takes education, and so that's what you're doing with your radio show. It's what I've been doing for 20 years now with my TV show and supporting those initiatives out there that make sense. It looks like we've got an initiative on the ballot already in Nevada. It looks like California is going to come along, Massachusetts, 
maybe Vermont will legalize it through their state legislature. So we need to keep pushing those efforts along. Looks like they're getting another medical marijuana vote in Florida. It's a step-by-step process, and when you win one victory, there's a whole new playing field to negotiate and further reforms to make. That's what our job is. You helped Jack Herrer research and write the first edition of The Emperor Wears No Clothes in 1985, of course, the seminal, groundbreaking publication, which really, I think, kick-started the modern hemp movement. How did you meet Jack, and what was he like back then? You know, the one word I always used to describe Jack was bombastic, because he was loud and in-your-face and insistent on the righteousness of the cause, and he took his book all over the country, to campuses all over America, and set up booths and, and put it out there. I met Jack through the Yippies, the activists in the 60s and 70s and 80s, based out of New York City and 9 Bleecker Street. I'd read a book in uh, 81 by Abby Hoffman, his biography called Soon to Be a Major Motion Picture. And in the back of it, said, if you're interested in getting involved, contact the Yippies in New York City. So I did, and I got to get their periodical, and there was an article in that called the CMI White Paper. It talked about industrial hemp. Then I went down to L.A. during a break. I was at Evergreen State College in Olympia, and it was a a summer break. I'd taken the summer term, but I had about five weeks off, and I went down, and I was a contact in the Yippie magazine Overthrow, and there was an L.A. contact called the Reefer Raiders. So I contacted them and ended up spending a couple weeks in the blacklight room of a head shop on Van Nuys Boulevard owned by Captain Ed Adair and got to know them over a couple of weeks. And just as I was about to go back to Evergreen, Ed said, you should meet my partner, Jack. So I went down the block about a mile, and just off of Van Nuys, there was another head shop there called High Country. And I I met Jack. We went out to dinner. He gave me a copy of his first book, Grass, which was a kind of a cartoon book about rating marijuana and how to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. And I saw him again when I moved to Oregon. I was Washington State Normal Coordinator from 82 to 84. And in 84, I came down to Oregon to help the Oregon Marijuana Initiative in August of 84. And Jack moved into Oregon in about October of 84. And he lived in Portland from 84 to 88. And we both lived about two blocks away from each other. And now the truth can be told, we were both growing marijuana in our basement with our friend John Sejo. And he had three little kids at the time. He was putting together this book, which was a lot of different news articles cut together. And this was back in the age when cut and paste meant scissors and glue. We didn't have personal computers yet or desktop publishing. And so he asked if he could come over to my house, which I lived in by myself, and put together his book. And so he did, and I did research and found a lot of quotes in the writings of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and gave them to Jack and he and Chris Conrad, who edited later editions of Jack's book, put them into The Emperor Wears No Clothes and into Chris Conrad's first book, Hemp Lifeline of the Future. In fact, they made up the whole last chapter of Chris's first book. But that's how I met him. You know, you mentioned the yippies. And I'll I'll have you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that my last interview that hasn't been posted yet was with Paul Krasner. Oh, all right. 
who is also a founding yippie. Paul, the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation that you founded, the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, has opened medical clinics in at least 12 states, the last I saw. Yeah. And as many as 250,000 patients have gone through the THCF clinics. Uh, What happens at those clinics? We help patients get their state permit for medical marijuana in states that allow that. We get medical records from patients regarding their condition for medical marijuana that qualifies in their state. Our doctors and staff review those medical records, and as long as they show that the potential patient has a qualifying condition, then we set up uh, an appointment for them to come in. We have them fill out a questionnaire. There's a video that explains the medical marijuana program in their state. Of course, we have to update that periodically. And then they meet with a doctor and a nurse and do the doctor does a physical exam, uh, reviews the medical record, and assuming the patient you know has the qualifying condition, and we wouldn't set the appointment if we didn't have the record showing they do, then they give them the paperwork they need to be an authorized medical marijuana patient in their state. In some states, like California and Washington until recently, just that paperwork alone was enough to register them or or authorize them for medical marijuana. In other states like Oregon, Hawaii, Colorado, Nevada, and Michigan, they have to turn that paperwork into their state health department, and the state health department issues their permit. Well, I just got to tell you, I I think that what you're doing is marijuana missionary work. Paul, you are said to have given... It's a blessing all the way around. In a big way. You are said to have given away over 200 kilos of free cannabis annually to patients over the last 12 years. And, 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 you know, I got to tell you, I'm I'm feeling kind of ill, bro. I I think I'm coming down with pretendinitis. Um, But but seriously. (laughs) You just ask me. I'll be happy to give you some. I give away, give it all away. It's fun. 200 kilos? That's some serious cotton mouth. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a blessing. You know, I went through the ringer myself in terms of marijuana cultivation charge back in 86. And I actually was a beneficiary of a jury nullification federal medical marijuana trial. It wasn't medical, actually, a federal marijuana trial back in 1993. I have a lot of patients who desperately need marijuana. I know how to grow really good marijuana, and I like to have good marijuana myself. And so I started growing it, and it just kept getting bigger, and I've been taking care of about 150 patients right now under Oregon's medical marijuana law. I basically take on the the sickest and people who've been ripped off by their previous grower or caregiver, and so they're in a, a tough spot. And then I have people coming from all over the world with cancer or other debilitating conditions that desperately need marijuana. I don't have enough to fill all the need, but I help as many as I can. And, you know, marijuana grows on trees. I'm able to get, you know, three to, to 15 pounds off a single plant if I grow it right. I started indoors in January and February and put it out and put a five or six foot tall plant out in May. And when I harvest it in October, it's, it's become a, a 12 to 15 foot tall tree. You mentioned jury nullification. You've been called yourself as an expert court witness on marijuana and, and, and even, I think, medical cannabis issues. What's it like yeah. walking into a courtroom as the expert stoner dude? <laughs> you know, I'm there to help the defendant. And I've had many people, even before I was doing the medical marijuana thing, saying I helped them more than their attorney ever did. You know, I've been through state charges, as I mentioned, back in 1986 in the state of Oregon, and federal charges for cultivating marijuana. Uh, the trial was in 93. 
but something I like doing. I like going in and, and telling the the courts the truth about marijuana to the best of my ability and, and helping defendants that are in the same place I had been previously. You know, it's kind of given back to help our patients. I've been called in. I've testified about 100 different times, mostly in Washington State. Paul Stanford from the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation. Give the best to your lovely lady for me, and we'll be talking soon. Thanks. All right, man. That includes this installment here present on Cannabis Radio. I want to thank Brasco, my man in the control room, and all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for some more reefer repartee and cannabis confabulation with some special hempo sapien on our journey to justice. Because when it comes to prohibition, you've got the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find yours and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my friends, stay strong, stand tall, take it easy. And don't forget to email me at hempresent at gmail.com. The Hempresent theme song, Take Back the Plant, is performed by Stickerbush, sung by a much younger version of myself, and you can hear the song in its entirety by Googling Stickerbush, Take Back the Plant. Turn up the music, maestro. I'm out. Marijuana! The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs>